0: Civic Conversations is about sharing the good, discovering the civic impact that people are having on the world. Today's guest is Dr. Evan Schnidman. Evan is the founder of and managing partner of Scientifico, a venture studio designed to introduce scientific rigor into the art of building and scaling companies. Prior to Scientifico, Evan was the founder and CEO of Prattle. And after Prattle was acquired by LiquidNet, Evan was the head of data innovation at LiquidNet. Evan started his career as an academic, earning his PhD from Harvard University with research focused on modeling small group decision making, specifically on mitigating cognitive bias when making investment in monetary policy decisions. This focus on mitigating cognitive bias led to Prattle, where Evan developed comprehensive, unbiased signals for investors. More recently, this work led to Scientifico, where Evan is utilizing a combination of proprietary data and a systematic process to improve venture investing by reducing startup failure rates and accelerating startup company growth. Evan thanks for being on our show. Thrilled to be here. And your hosts today are myself, Grant Parisi, and Scott DeSantis. So Evan, I'd like to start with, back at the beginning where you grew up, we understand just in chatting offline that you come from a family of entrepreneurs. Tell us more about what it was like growing up in, in such environment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, you know, I, I often joke, I, I don't know what it's like to, to work for somebody else. I, I strug, struggle to imagine it. Both my parents had their own businesses. My my mom had a consulting firm doing management consulting work, acquisition integration, executive coaching, diversity work. And then my father had his own accounting firm. So I had a, ran a midsize accounting firm. And then uh, after my dad died, my mom remarried. My stepdad was actually a school social worker by day, but had a a family therapy practice at night. So he even had a side business that was his own as well. And so just about everybody in my life was was their own boss and worked the hours that go go along with that. And so I, I never really had a had a nine to five benchmark in mind. I always sort of had this mentality that uh, that you build something that is yours and and it lives or dies by by your own efforts. And so that's kind of stuck with me in everything I do.
0: So that desire to create something that was your own, or maybe it was just seeing all the fun of everyone in your family working <laughs> all day, every day. <laughs> Not sure what attracted you there, but that then led to your, funnily enough, beginning on an acad- academic track, at least at, at the outset. So how did you get there? And then what was the shift?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, sort of an, an interesting Background. I mean, you know, I went from spending my my Saturday afternoons as a small child hanging out in an accounting firm. It doesn't sound like the most fun thing, but I got pretty good at math. I got to you know worked my way through through the education system and got into college and ended up pretty far ahead on credits when I was at Washington University in St. Louis. And and so at WashU, I, I got I somehow convinced the administration to let me get a master's degree concurrently with my bachelor's. And I, I realized I was going to be able to graduate. I had enough credits to graduate a year early, but I was only going to be able to graduate a semester early due to distribution requirements. And so I convinced them to let me get a master's degree so I could graduate on time, but with, with both the bachelor's and the master's. And they did. They, they let me do that. And I, I ended up working with a brilliant professor who was, he had four PhDs. He's probably the smartest person I've ever worked with. And Norman really took me under his wing. To, to understand the world of political economy, and so I got to get into dense formal theory modeling as a twenty year old who who might not have been quite so current on my calculus at that moment. Uh, I was really being thrown into the fire, and um, it kind of snowballed from there. I ended up with a couple of publications with Norman Schofield and I uh, doing some interesting work on on group decision dynamics, and I decided to apply to PhD programs straight out of undergrad. I got into some really good schools and and ended up at Harvard right at the beginning of the financial crisis. So it was a great time to be sitting in an academic institution, (laughs) not having to worry about my job security. And so I spent the next five years getting my PhD at Harvard. For a portion of that time, I was actually also faculty at Brown. And really, I was obsessed with how how to optimize small group decision dynamics. And the most interesting small group of decision makers I could think of circa 2008, 9, 10, that was the Federal Reserve. And so I set out to model how the Fed makes decisions and how those decisions affect financial markets. Relatively quickly figured out that that's a pretty esoteric field. Unfortunately, in the process, subjected some poor, lowly students to me ranting about that. One of those students might be on this call, right, Grant? It's probably worth noting, Grant Grant was my student at Harvard. That's how we first met. So I, I'm sorry. I subjected you to a lot of research <laughs> that uh, maybe only a few dozen other people in the world cared about. Anyway, so we that ended up that research line ended up sort of yielding this interesting question about how does the market react to central bank communication? And so I ended up delving into that using natural language processing, and that snowballed into what became Prattle, where we we actually were modeling group decision dynamics and, and identifying specifically how the market responds to. That's, me. That's cert- certainly no slight
0: at all, Evan. Um, <laughs>
1: I think subjecting
0: is hardly the right word. I'm, I'm smiling though it can't be heard, but it, it's amazing. So much of what we've heard in these conversations is the influence that others have on one's career track and the role that, that mentors play. And from your family, as you were growing up to mentorship at WashU, and then while you were on the academic track, but then pivoting to to what became Prattle. I wonder who and maybe what influenced that change and and shift from the the track that you were on in 0809.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it was it was sort of an interesting experience going into academia, both with the background of growing up in an entrepreneurial household but also growing up in a household of other people who were entirely overeducated. Both my parents had MBAs. My dad also had a law degree. My mom has a PhD. I kind of knew that a degree was a way to hone your skills, to go do something bigger and better, whatever you view that to be, whether that's staying in academia and and doing really unique research or whether that's going out and building your own company or or working for somebody else. So I, I didn't feel locked into academia in any way. There was a brief period where I was certainly toying with the idea of staying in an academic and, and I really enjoyed doing research and thoroughly enjoyed teaching. I really enjoyed teaching. Once I developed a novel methodology for analyzing market moving language, it was clear to me there was an opportunity to, to commercialize that. And um, at some moment in time, I, I couldn't play both sides. I couldn't stay in an academic and and run a startup. And so in 2014, I, I transitioned full time to starting prattle and and really running with a high growth technology startup.
2: And then how did your philosophy around being a you said you enjoyed teaching. I guess how did that inform your leadership at the company and you know the the insights that you were finding how did your philosophy from academia influence your leadership style at the company?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it was it, that that's an interesting question actually because Both my business partner and I, so Bill McMillan and I started Prattle, we'd both been academics. Bill's a brilliant PhD, applied statistician, came out of a a political science department at University of Michigan. He he and I kind of looked at this and said, we can build a great company with great talent from people who maybe have been overlooked by other employers for one reason or another. Maybe they're an academic sitting there with as, as ABD, all but dissertation, as a graduate student who's really talented, but quite, couldn't quite hone in their research agenda, or, or maybe just hasn't finished their, their dissertation yet, but they're sitting there um, with a great technical skill set. So we recruited some folks who, who fit that profile. We also managed to, to really seek out people who a lot of other companies would overlook based on whether it's, you know, their racial background, their where their what their upbringing was, their lack of education. We didn't we didn't actually have any real trouble finding great people as long as we sort of broadened our scope and got, and were confident in our ability to train them and make them really great assets to the business. And so, you know, our our very first hire ever only had one semester of college education. He's to this day one of the most brilliant developers I've ever worked with we're very happy with the fact that we were able to give a guy like that an opportunity and really, you know, help his career thrive. He's gone on to do amazing things and when i look at what we did best as a company, the thing i'm most proud of is is the personnel we brought in. We were able to to change the trajectory of their career.
0: Yeah, you sh- you shared in our discussions offline some of the amazing things that your former employees have gone off to do and What an amazing impact to have even beyond the scope of what Prattle did. Do you have a story or two, a a highlight or or two of what those in in the former Prattle circle
1: have gone on to accomplish? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's see, gosh, we've got people who've who've gone on to be running statistics for Major League Baseball teams. We've got people who have gone on, we have multiple former Prattle personnel who've gone on to found their own companies. We've got uh, a couple of those, and we've even been able to slot people into top tier quantitative hedge funds who might not have otherwise gotten a shot at at some of those roles. Even the former members of my team who are still at LiquidNet, I'm proud to say that they've been able to get promoted up the ranks there pretty quickly and and are actually now in management roles from people who had been sort of more mid-level previously. And so all told, it's as I said, it's it's certainly the thing I'm most proud of is, is the team we not only built but the way that their careers were, were enhanced by, you know, helping us build Prattle together. Yeah,
0: I mean, so so much of what we see today in the workforce, a lot of the social problems that our country is, is facing, economic problems, is driven by kind of these biases in the workforce, misalignment of information. It's no wonder now that you are <laughs> advising other companies in in the startup phase to, to do the same, and I'd I'd love to hear more about that upcoming. But first, just wanna just wanna ask, how do you do it? <laughs> I mean, it's much easier said than done to say, I hired someone who had a semester of college education, and they they became such a success. That's not easy for employers to do.
1: Yeah, and, and I think a lot of it is about understanding an individual's strengths and weaknesses, right? Some people are incredibly creative, but not detail-oriented. So you play to their strengths, right? You give them an intractable problem that no one else can solve and let them exercise that creativity to figure out a solution. You don't have them build 100% of the product after that. You have them build the first 60 70 80% and then pass it off to somebody else who's really detail-oriented to finish it and polish it and put it in front of customers, right? And a lot of the challenge that I think a lot of companies face is they try to pigeonhole people into, this is your job, this is your role, you will do 100% of this project. And if you understand your own team, if you take the time to get to know them as people and what they they get excited about and and really what motivates them, you can play to their strengths in a way that it's motivating for them. They're working at 2 o'clock in the morning. And yes, I have many, many times been reviewing code commits at 2 or 2.30 in the morning. They love what they do if you give them the opportunity to focus on the things that really that excite them. And so a lot of it is, is about sort of letting them flourish in ways that they're naturally inclined to do. And a lot of them is, is about just giving people some freedom to make some mistakes. And a lot of the great stories about the entrepreneurial community, the te- especially the tech startup community, is about failures. As long as you can sort of time box those failures, they don't derail your company and they don't eat up too many resources. It can be a really effective way to let people learn and grow in their position to actually let them struggle with something for a little bit, because as they figure out those solutions, they may find something that I didn't know, that Bill didn't know, that, know, that, that other people in the organization may never have known. So it's not just a matter of dictating, you know, here's the list of tasks you must do. Here's how you accomplish those tasks. You know, it's it's a matter of giving people a little bit more runway and a little bit more more room to exercise what they're passionate about, and what they're good at. We all live in a world where we're staring at our email all day, where we're you know looking at Asana or Trello or Jira or you know one of these task management softwares where it's just one task after another, and it's really hard for people to excel at that. Right, say most people, most especially creative people, and so it's a lot of a lot about giving them the freedom to to be good at what they want to be good at.
2: Well, it's it's exciting to hear about your philosophy of you know having mistakes and you know, struggles be turned into learning experiences more broadly, and you know the combination of that freedom to an employee or, or to a team, but then also the you know, somebody doing sixty percent of the task and knowing when to pass the baton and you know, having specialists assemble a team and really that team mentality of one plus one equals three to build something bigger. It's exciting to hear you you share that perspective. I guess Grant and I would be very interested in better understanding you know, how you now you're imparting some of these wisdoms to the to some of these folks who you're mentoring now and some of these other businesses. What struggles are you hearing about most today and what are the kind of key wisdom tidbits you're you're imparting most?
1: It's an interesting question because I think one of the things that's been really exciting for me in the last year is getting to spend more and more time with the startup community. And I advise a number of companies, almost all early stage, anything from pre-seed through series A and one company or two companies now that are about to raise their series B. And so, you know, I've been able to to sort of step in and and make a meaningful impact in, in relatively small time commitments on my part. But getting to work with management teams who've got brilliant ideas and are differentiated business models and really unique technology in some respects. But what I find is a lot of companies, you know, they face the same challenges. They face challenges establishing product market fit. They face challenges understanding how to how to scale their sales process. They face challenges managing their tech personnel. Because I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but sometimes technologists can be a little bit quirky. So this is one of those funny things that uh you know we all we all know we all know that uh, the people the people who are willing to spend 20 hours a day coding and not talking to another human being might be might be a little bit different than than other folks but uh when you have to actually you know day in and day out manage those folks you got to really understand what makes them tick and how to motivate them and so i spent a lot of time with the, the leadership of these companies helping them prioritize their own time but also their team's time I'll give a lot of credit to to my friend, Scott Jenkins, who who took me through an exercise in early days of Prattle, where, where I sat down and figured out how much time was being spent on every core task that we were doing as a company in a given week. And I was horrified the first time we did this. And I figured out that as a company, we were spending less than 20 hours a week on sales as a company, not as an individual, as a company. And if you're spending less than 20 hours a week on sales as a company, you either have to be the best at sales in the world, or you're going to fail as a company. And it fundamentally changed my mentality about how we allocate resources. And uh, so I give Scott a lot of credit for pointing that out to me. I've made every company I work with go through some variation of that exercise now for years, and really figuring out you know what are their priorities and what does the time allocation reveal about their priorities so i spent a lot of time on that and a lot of time really not only talking about establishing product market fit but really refining that go to market plan and how do you scale that sales process what does that look like from an internal personnel perspective and then how do you how do you stay strategically aligned to make sure that you're listening to your customers about what needs to be that next product build
0: it's so interesting to to hear you say that because there's so many problems that businesses face that are not unique (laughs) right and i wonder because sometimes we we speak with older individuals who are have been in the business world for decades and they seem to have a lot of the answers to the test and you certainly in your work with startups have a lot of the answers to the problems that these early stage businesses are facing how much of your work and how much of what you you like to do Evan is driven by providing those solutions that you've seen the impact over and over again versus hearing about a new challenge that a business is facing and finding a new solution
1: i think you're right to say that a lot of a lot of commonalities exist between businesses i think that's exactly right and for the most part Sort of the framework, the mentality, the management struggles, they're not unique. Most businesses go through very similar problems. Where they, things get unique are, are the product, and in particular, establishing that product market fit and knowing where exactly does this technology solution, where exactly does this widget, does this, does this user interface, does this, whatever it is, does it fit into someone else's workflow? Whose problem are you solving and how much are they willing to pay for that solution? And unfortunately, a lot of companies get really excited and fall in love with their product. And they've effectively fallen in love with the solution without sufficiently studying the problem. And so there's some great literature out there on on the commonalities of entrepreneurial success that are almost all point to the same thing, which is you have to really deeply understand your customer. And so one of the things that, that I really focus on is, what exactly is the use case? What problems do your customers face? And what are you solving for them with this solution? How does this fit into their workflow? And what is that user journey? They sit down, they pour themselves a cup of coffee, they're sitting at their desk, they open up their computer, and what problem are they facing every morning that you help solve? And for many companies, they don't have an answer to that question. And until you have a clear answer to that question, it's very, very hard to go make sales.
0: Well, we think that. <laughs> The reason our listeners tune into our podcast is because we're seeing more and more interest these days in civic mindset and a desire for firms to do good in the world and individuals to have a positive impact. In your role as an advisor to so many companies, how does that fit into how you're advising them? Is that a solution that their customers are, are looking for as you frame it? Is it something that you're seeing companies are trying to offer? How does the civic mindset, how does doing good fit into the business world as you see it?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I spend a lot of my time in financial services still, right? I spend just as much time sort of generally in the data world, but really financial services is, is still kind of home for me having built a fintech company. And in the sort of finance world, especially the asset management community, talk about sort of civic responsibility tends to live and die on ESG, right? Environmental, social, and governance investing. So everybody's got an ESG tool and ESG widgets, you know, some ESG filter things. And it's very, very easy to tell when a company is doing it purely for promotional reasons, because it's it's the latest fad versus the ones that genuinely believe that this is something that is meaningful and actually matters to society, and the tools that tend to succeed are the ones where people are true believers that you know we can really help filter on what are environmentally sound practices, what are socially responsible companies, which companies have strong governance and so I, I look at that world a lot and i and I look at companies all the time who I think are being a little bit disingenuous with their product and, and maybe being opportunistic and launching something there versus ones that are really trying to solve problems. And so I, you know, I, think, I think that's sort of the, the overarching sort of macro view. From my own perspective, you know, one of the things that I've been working on for the last six months or so now is we've been building out the infrastructure behind Scientifico, which is our new venture studio. And my colleague on Scientifico is Evan Reese. Yes, we're we're both named Evan. So we are not exactly a paradigm of diversity, right? We're both affluent white guys named Evan. We are. I can't really hide that fact. And we know that that does not make us the most diverse group. And so we've made a point of going out and building a community of advisors who can not only advise our portfolio companies with diverse perspectives, but can also help us see a diverse set of problems that we would not necessarily have seen from our vantage point. And we think it's really important to, to have a broader voice in the entrepreneurial community, both advising companies and helping sort of highlight problems that we might be able to, to build solutions to, build companies to solve those problems. And so from my perspective, one of the best things that I can be doing in the space is building out that advisor community, building out that network of of more diverse voices to to highlight where those inefficiencies and problems occur in society.
2: appreciate you sharing that. and It reminds Grant and I of one of our previous guests, John DeSantis, who was early in the socially responsible investing space and offered perspective. Of, and it's been great to see, at least presently, so much more focus today on the ESG investing and impact work. I guess, as you consider your your current venture right now and looking ahead, what aspirations do you have? What what impact are you most wishing to have on, you know, on the world and what can our listeners
1: you know, take from the good you're trying to do? I see how we've evolved in the last, really a couple decades now, to have data on everything, literally everything. And I don't see that data being used in particularly socially responsible ways. I don't see that data necessarily being used to help the consumer day in and day out very frequently. And so the focus on the problems that that Evan Reese and I are both excited about is really the intersection of data and community. How do we help people as a community by leveraging the data about them and about society writ large to improve on essentially the, the details, the problem points, the pain points in their life and offer up. a, a, you know, a suite of businesses that, that provide solutions to, you know, these, some of these community oriented challenges. One of the things we've been looking at is, you know, is something as simple as, okay, you, I, I happen to live on, on a whole bunch of land in the middle of the woods and I, and I love where I live. And you know, what happens pretty frequently when you live in the middle of the woods, trees fall down and they block your driveway. And so, you know, when my chainsaw broke, who did I go to to, to, to get it fixed? I actually went to a neighbor that's something that is a foreign concept for many of us today and there's there's a lot of questions to me around that type of community response can we foster that can we utilize knowledge about our about our local environment about our community can we utilize that data we've got about ourselves and the expertise of our neighbors and, and those around us to actually have a more efficient solution when, you know, your neighbor needs a chainsaw fixed, right? I know that sounds like silly and trivial, but when you can't get out of your driveway, it's not. So, uh, so there you go.
0: <laughs> what gives you the most hope and what you're seeing, the, maybe the companies that you're working with today are maybe totally unrelated? What's inspiring you?
1: Oh, gosh, there's, there, there's a lot that inspires me. You know, I think one of the things that as I've gotten really involved in the startup community, the the fact that people are willing to jump in and solve problems that they that they don't fully understand the contours of, right? That they have just such passion and enthusiasm for fixing a societal problem and probably making some money in the process, but I, I have no problem with that, right? That's how we align people's incentives the fact that that there's sort of this boundless energy for people to go out and solve problems and deal with these inefficiencies in our society that's really exciting to me and so i get excited about solving problems i get excited about other people who want to solve problems and i get excited about helping them solve problems a lot of problems to be solved <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> but really a lot of great people some of them on our show who are doing the work to improve our society so Thank you so much, Evan, for joining us today in this conversation. Again, my name is Grant Parisi. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you guys so much for having me.
0: You can listen to more Civic Conversations online or on your favorite podcast app. You can email us at civicconvos at gmail.com.